From the Office of Social Justice of the Christian Reformed Church of North America, this is the Do Justice Podcast. Hello, welcome to Do Justice, a podcast of the Office of Social Justice of the Christian Reformed Church of North America. Today's guest is the Reverend Dr. Alexia Salvatera. Kate Coyman, host of Do Justice, is conducting interviews with various Christian social justice changemakers whenever she gets a good Wi-Fi connection in roadside parks, campgrounds, and mountaintops as she travels around the country on a sabbatical with her husband and young children. Reverend Alexia Salvatera is an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and the co-author of Faith Rooted Organizing. She also serves as a consultant for a variety of organizations, including World Vision USA, World Vision International, and Women of Vision, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, the Christian Community Development Association, the Women's Donor Network, Auburn Theological Seminary, Interfaith Worker Justice, PICO, and Sojourners. Alexia is adjunct faculty at the New York Theological Seminary and Biola University, and she was the executive director of Clergy and Laity United for Economic Justice for over 11 years. Let's go now to today's interview. I'd love for you to introduce yourself a little bit so that we know how to talk about um, how to introduce you well. I first heard you speak at CCDA uh, probably 10 years ago or something. Um, and started kind of following your work and then was able to meet you in person. And I'll just be honest, you're one of my, um, I, I respect you in my like very top list of uh, Christian leaders and especially women, Christian women leaders who are doing this work with such bravery and your stories that you tell have really helped to shape my ideas about not just uh, immigration stuff, but I think also what it means to be a, a Christian who holds on to the hope of the gospel um, as we are doing really hard work. I think the work that you do is really hard. Um, yeah. Anyway, so tell us a little bit about you and then I'll start asking questions. So um, they call me La Madrina. Um, it means Godmother because I've been working in the area of the church's response to the immigration crisis for about 40 years. Uh, so that's been local work on the ground, that's been immigrant ministry, but it's also been starting national initiatives. So I've started uh, four national initiatives. And then, uh, but then the, the work that we do in Southern California is work that is with churches um, and Christian student groups on the ground. And, and I think that I, the other thing I would say is that um, in all of the work that I do, I have a very strong sense, not only that the church has a unique contribution to bring and that it's a testimony when we bring it, but also that we bring a unique contribution when the church is united across the lines that divide people. So I look at John 17, 21, which says that the world that know, will know that Jesus has come because of unity of his disciples. And I don't think that that's about um, CRC and Lutherans getting together. I don't think that the world knows who we are or cares. I think, but I think that when immigrant and non-immigrant believers find our unity in joint mission, that the world wakes up and says, ooh, we've never seen anything like this before. 
So um, I'm very committed to that kind of bridge building and that kind of joint mission work. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became a person who is an activist on justice issues, but also a person of faith and how you came to be somebody who so um, closely ties those things together. So exercising your faith through addressing systems and structures of oppression. How did that happen for you? So I was raised in a family without any religious tradition. Um, my family were from Mexico and Russia from the socialist sort of anti-church context in both those countries. So I became a Christian in the Jesus movement of the 70s. You know, that's why I've been doing the work for 40 years, right? I am that old. Um, but, you know, I had, a, I had a call to justice before I knew Jesus, actually. That I, a friend of mine once said that I have the spiritual gift of justice. And I said to him, you know, that's not on the list. And he said, the list is not closed. Music is not on the list. Yeah, um, and he, so I thought a lot about spiritual gifts and callings that, you know, you, a spiritual gift is an internal compulsion. Well, to me, if I don't preach the gospel, but um, in all of the areas where some people have gifts, those gifts are for the upbuilding of the body. So you have a particular gift to help all Christians to have sort of complete spiritual nutrition. So someone with the gift of evangelism is supposed to inspire other people to witness in their daily lives, even though that person is an evangelist, that person eats it, sleeps it, drinks it, you know, but their purpose of their gift is not until they, they would be super evangelists, but so that everyone would participate in some way, would be guided and inspired. So I think that when you feel the pain of injustice happening to other people in your own body, that that's a compulsion, that's a spiritual gift. And I think I've always been like that since I was apparently with my family since I was very small. And, you know, that some people could say it's because we experienced a lot of injustice, which we did. But my sisters didn't have the same reaction to it I did. You know, I think it's a spiritual gift where you actually feel like you can't escape it. Like you, and it's not just your, the injustice that happens to you, it's injustice in general. So um, I think that becoming a Christian gave me hope that I was not a person that was working for justice before coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior because I, I mean, I felt it, but I didn't do anything about it because it looked to me like injustice usually wins. And so that maybe your only chance of escaping it was to, um, as an individual. You talked about feeling the pain of other people's oppression in your own body, right? And I think that that's something that, yeah, if, if other people also have that gift or have that, resonate with that idea, how are you staying healthy? How are you staying energized? How are you able to keep doing the work when it is such a, when that gift also comes with the burden of, of feeling things so deeply? Well, I think the first thing I would just say is that you have to do the work well and consistently because when you have those feelings but you haven't yet put them into effective action they bother you right they tear at you but once you're actually engaged in the work there's a satisfaction of the impulse um and also you know the things are much more black and white when you're not doing the work when you're doing the work 
it's very different. You know, there's joy and sorrow and everything all mixed together because it's real. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that that would be part of my answer. I think the other parts of my answer is really that it's not us as individuals that do the work. We have this very individualistic culture, and that's not a scriptural way of seeing the world. So it's really the body of Christ that does the work, and you just have your little voice in the choir. And so when you realize that, you don't, you don't live with the pressure of having to get the work done in the same way. Your pressure is only your, your, your ganas, your deep desire, but it's not the sense that it all is on you because it's not all on you. You're really part of something much larger that goes around the world and throughout the ages. And that gives you time and space to do things that take care of you, you know, that give you release and refreshment. So for me, and for me, those things are not just overtly religious things, right? They're things like riding a bicycle. Really love riding a bicycle. Really love dancing. You know, I love physical movement. Love things that make you have to concentrate on the moment and not on the bigger picture, you know? So I think that love music. So all of those kinds of things, and you make space for those soul things that feed your soul. Um, then you and soul, you know, I like the ancient Greek distinction where they talk about soul and spirit. That you know feeds my spirit to go to church, right? It feeds my spirit to be in contemplative prayer, but it feeds my soul to be on a bicycle. <laughs> and I think that the soul is part of who we are as spiritual people. I love that. Um... I hate being on a bicycle, to be honest. No, it. But I haven't gotten to the part yet where I feel like, oh, yes, my, my spirit is fulfilled with this, where my soul feels, feels good. That's funny. Um, we're all different. Um, so, okay, one of the things you said that really I want to know more about oh, is... There's one more thing I do want to say. Oh, yeah, go for it. Part of not being alone is that it's not just theoretical that you're part of the body of Christ, that you, you really, that relationships are nourishing that relationships that are spiritual friendships are nourishing. And we can be working with people and not be friends. I think you have to go the extra step to, to say, I'm going to, this relationship is going to be more than about work. And, and you, that we should make each other laugh and care for each other and tell stories and eat all those good things because those relationships are nourishing. So you talked about how not doing the work is different, uh, that you have different ideas about what the work is like when you're not doing it. Once you're doing it, then it's the joys and the sorrows and it's gray. I think that's the word that you use. Yeah. I have felt that a lot, right? That I had, I had this idea about civil rights work, for example, that it was very clear, uh, black and white. Um, and I think what I've, what I've started to learn is that there's a, a lot of discomfort in trying to do justice work. And part of that is because I'm not always sure what the next right step is. Yeah. Um, do you always feel sure of the no. next right step? Oh, not at all. Not at all. And I don't think I'm supposed to be. You know, I think that one of the, the biggest impediments to justice is romanticism. You know, people are saints and sinners, all of us. And, you know, what helps us move forward is the right combination of law and grace, as Lutherans, I'm a Lutheran, as Lutherans would say, you know, the right combination of law and grace in our lives moves us forward. So, you know, I think that that um, immigrants aren't 
angel, people aren't angels just because they suffer unjustly. That doesn't turn them into angels. They're still people. Um, and some of them are more spiritually committed and mature than others. You know, but I don't care how spiritually mature and committed you are, you're still going to do things out of at certain moments out of narrow self-interest. You know, you're still going to, I mean, we're sinners. Like what, you know, when people say, what is it about illegal you don't understand? I always want to say, what is it about sin you don't understand? <laughs> you know, collective sin, individual sin. It's like, yeah, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So let's figure this out. Like what are the next best, what's the best next step for all of us? Where is their clemency and where isn't there? What's an appropriate punishment, right? Absolutely. Um, how do we re recognize threats and, and benefits and contributions? It's not a simple picture. Um, but in the midst of that lack of simplicity, there's still broad outlines of consensus that we can move forward on and that we don't move forward on for bad reasons, Right. So, and that would be true with individual cases where if there was enough judicial discretion, individual cases could be dealt with much more effectively and rightly. And there are cases in terms of large policy decisions that are just decisions that, that create on a consensus basis much more harm. Anybody who really knows the programs and the field, you know, that there are decisions that create much more harm than good and vice versa. So there are, there are areas that are much grayer than others, areas where there's a lot of contention and areas where there's really broad consensus. But it's cowardice or cruelty that makes us do the wrong thing. One of the things I think you do really well is to try to illustrate some of these big ideas through the stories of people you love and people you really know. You right. tell stories really well. And I wonder, you know, you think of the people who say to you, what part of the legal don't you understand? Or the people who really see this issue as being very black and white and maybe um, taking more of a restrictionist approach in their black and white thinking about this. Do you, what, what story can you think of or, or whose story do you think is helpful to share with, with maybe someone who is a, an evangelical Christian? but who supports the direction of the president right now when it comes to immigration policy. How are you responding to that? So I, I've been thinking a lot about um, Central America, right? You know, we, since 1948 in this country, we signed with all, almost every other country in the world, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, where we agreed to accept refugees. You know, that, um, and asylum seekers are refugees who apply for that status at our border. So refugees are people who are fleeing violent persecution in their home country as a result of their race, their religion, their political opinion, their um, membership in a specific social group, right? So they're people who can prove that. Um, so we made this agreement that we would all sort of split up the numbers, right? And the U.S. pretty consistently before this administration took around... Uh, 70 to 100,000 a year refugees and around 25,000 a year asylum seekers, pretty consistently through Republican and Democratic administrations, right? This administration is trying to take as few asylum recipients as humanly possible um, in every way. And there's like two, been two under changes since they started. And also has set the refugee figure for this year at 18,000 and next year at 18,000. So we're not exactly doing the share that we've done in the past. Right. 
Um, and yet that is a national value. It's, a, it's in our law and it is a value that we hold as a country along with most other countries in the world. I mean, Iran didn't sign. Do we wanna be in the same boat as Iran or as most countries in the world? You know, it's sort of basic values, right? Um, but we also, I think, um, we don't have an element in our legal system, but I think that it's sort of a common sense value that where we have had a negative impact that has helped, that is a factor in people coming to this country where our policies, our foreign relations policies, our trade policies have had a really a demonstrable negative impact on another country and that that has provoked in fact a refugee crisis or has increased a refugee crisis that that we can make a common sense argument that we have more responsibility there that if we are going to take some refugees and asylum seekers that we have more responsibility in the area of the world where we've had more negative um, and we have a very long history with Central America going back to the banana republics of intervention. An intervention that, uh, again, it would take me a long time to tell a story, but I would encourage your listeners to research it for themselves. Um, there's a book called The Harvest of Empire by Juan Gonzalez, excellent historical work that really documents exactly how that all unfolded. But the current crisis did not happen without our active intervention. So, you know, there's some real uh, reason to suppose that we might want to look at how we might have a little more responsibility there than we do, for example, in Syria, right? Um, so that's one. Secondly, so then I want to want to tell um, part of part of what our our asylum and refugee policies say is that we judge whether someone's a refugee or an asylee both by whether their government is persecuting them or whether their government cannot stop persecution. Do you understand that that's actually in the law? The situation in Central America at this point, except in Nicaragua, where the government is in charge of doing this, is that the government is too weak to stop organized crime from taking over and literally running huge territories in Central America. So people, um, Jeff Sessions, when he was the attorney general, sent a directive to judges, immigration judges around the country, saying that they could not accept um, organized crime as a reason for granting asylum. Except that if organized crime is actually running the territories in which they exist, and if those territories are large enough that people cannot realistically escape within their country, then the government is unable to protect people from the, and, and it fits absolutely into our asylum law and absolutely into our refugee laws. And so a number of judges just ignored the directive. Depending on the California, they ignored the directive. In New York, they ignored the directive. And in Iowa, they all obeyed the directive. But the direct, but you could, there's really a lawsuit there that there's just been so many lawsuits that I think they haven't gotten around to that particular one. But so anyhow, so I'm giving all of this as background to the story that I want to share with you. So I'm not going to use her name because um, it's, she can be so easily endangered. Um, she, uh, she was in an area where the Mara Salvatrucha took over in El Salvador, which is most of the country at this point. And um, they do something that's commonly referred to as extortion. I think that's the word that most people would understand this under. They charge a daily rent small businesses. 
So there's just money that you just payments that the business small businesses need to give them every day. So they had a little business and they were doing their payments and the payments kept going up and up and up. And finally the payments were at a level that they could not pay. And, um, you know, the Mata does different things when people can't pay. One thing they do is kidnap children for human trafficking. They say, you have a really pretty little eight-year-old daughter and we can, you know, there's some stuff we can do with her. Um, in this particular case, they put a lot of pressure on her husband to join them, that they knew he was a person with a lot of skills and he was a real leader in the community. And he was a, a Christian, but, you know, he was, they kept threatening him with what they were going to do to his children and his wife. And um, at a certain point, he just gave in and he joined them. And then his, he changed that he stopped going to church um, because he was being now engaged in some really ugly stuff. And he stopped going to church and he started drinking and he started beating her. And um, she took their daughter and she ran. Um, and, but he had by this point really gone over to the dark side. And so, you know, he essentially put out a hit on her. He was so angry and he was so jealous at, that um, if that if she was found by the Mata anywhere, that um, she was to be tortured and killed. And the daughter was to be brought back to him. Daughter was all of 13 years old when they ran. So they got to the U.S., they got to the border, and they were one of the families where the daughter was taken away. And she was given a piece of paper to sign that said that she... She didn't know what the paper was. It was in English. And they said, if you ever want to see your daughter again, you sign this paper. And it was a voluntary deportation. So um, she was deported. Um, and her daughter was put into detention. Um, where some very bad things happen to her in detention, as does happen sometimes to people in detention. Um, and she kept, um, you know writing her mother and saying, please, please get me out of here. I'm only able to survive because I know that maybe one day you will come and save me. And uh, I'm finally, you know, Al Otro Lado, which is a, a law firm that works on both sides of the border. It's a nonprofit law firm, was able to get them to be reunited. Uh, took, took many, many months. And this girl is deeply damaged, um, but was finally able to get them reunited in this country, um, but uh, the and from a new policy of the administration called stay in Mexico, they were gonna take them and put them back in Mexico while they're fighting their asylum case. The problem is that the Zetas, which is the largest um, drug trafficking organized crime in, in group in Mexico, works, they subcontract with the Mara. So the Zetas have her picture. You know, for her to go back to Mexico is to risk her life. So, you know, that battle is being fought right now, but this woman lives in fear, even in the United States, right? But the United States is the only place where she has some hope of safety and where that, that beautiful, traumatized 14-year-old has some hope of rebuilding her life. So, you know, I, I want to share this particular story because it's complex. If you meet the children who have walked for thousands of miles, they have the hollow eyes of refugees everywhere.
But yeah, I guess I will tell another simpler story too. I want to tell a simpler story. But I wanted to share a complex story because I, you know, so often without knowing much about what's going on, people will say, well, you know, domestic violence is no reason for asylum. Well, domestic violence by itself is no reason for asylum. Domestic violence is part of this woman's case, right? But it's all wrapped up together, right? And yet our fundamental commitment as Christians, I'm not even talking about as Americans here, you know, as Christians, our fundamental commitment to this Christian sister is to do what we can to keep her safe. This story brings together so many of the, the big picture, horrific policy changes that we've seen in the last year or so. And I, I think it's an important one because without the Remain in Mexico policy, this would be a different story, right? Without Jeff Sessions' decision that um, basically, you know, every Central American asylum seeker was not going to be able to seek right. asylum, okay. it would be a different story. And so it is, I mean, I think that we, you know, I, I think about the stories that I, I heard you tell 10 years ago, which were so compelling. Right. This, this one feel, I mean... Uh, yeah, I, I think we are in a new era of um, complexity or just depth of suffering, perhaps. Yes, I don't know. Right. You feel like we're... Oh, we're I, I wanted to, that's why I told the stories, because we have a chronic crisis that I've been struggling with for 40 years, you know, where we actually know, we actually have real bipartisan consensus about what a system should look like that's effective, fair, just, and logical, and humane but we haven't been able to implement that, right? So there's a chronic crisis, and usually the stories I tell relate to the chronic crisis. But there's also an acute crisis that comes from the two over 200 regulatory changes that this administration has made since December of 2016. So I want to tell a couple other little stories, if I can. Um, one of them is also a Central America story that, you know, we don't supply lawyers for people seeking asylum, even if they're children. So one of the things that the churches do, where we are, that the churches do in many places, is organize legal clinics. But somebody has to watch the children while the mothers are in the legal clinic. So we were watching, we were, I was helping babysit because one of our volunteers was sick. And the children were coloring. And there was a nine-year-old and they had just arrived, her and her mother. And she started talking to me the way that kids do when they're doing something else, you know, something's going to pour out their heart to you when they're in the back of the car or, they're, you know, so she's coloring, she's looking down and she's talking to me and she was talking to me in Spanish, but I'll tell the story in English. And she said, um, Pastor, um, I was so scared. They were, they were hitting my big brother and there was blood coming out of his nose and then there was blood coming out of his ears and his eyes and there was so much blood, Pastor. And I was so scared. And my mother took my hand and she said, run, run. And I didn't want to leave my brother. But we ran and we ran. And we ran for days, Pastor. And I was, I was hungry and I was cold. And the ground that we slept on was hard. But my mommy said, just keep going. Just keep going. We're going to go somewhere safe. And then she lowered her voice and she said, so we're here, Pastor. We're safe. Thanks to God. And, um... Oh, man, I still can't tell the story. This happened a couple of years ago. 
because I can't tell about crying because it was just so awful to say, no, you're not saved. No, you're not saved. Jeff Sessions just did an order. You, you're not saved, right? Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's a simple story, right? That's a child. And I wanted to make sure to tell the complex one and the simple one. Um, another story that I think is important about the changes that have happened. Um, Pastor Noe Carias ran here from Central America when he was 13 in a much earlier time. And uh, he had been actually captured by guerrillas. It's a, it's a complicated story, but he ran. You know, he was able to, he was captured when he was eight. He escaped when he was 13. He couldn't find his family. He came to the U.S. because he thought he had family members here. Um, he actually has an asylum case, but he didn't know what an asylum case was. <laughs> so he just went and worked in the fields from when he was 13 to when he was 20. And he was deported three times to Mexico because he told them he was Mexican. He was scared to go back to Guatemala. So he was deported out of raids in the fields, working in the fields. Now, of course, the vast majority of people working in our fields are immigrants. That's always been true in this country. Slavery was a giant program to import field workers. So, you know, he was a field worker, but uh, we only give 5,000 visas a year for all unskilled workers, including all field workers. So, you know, we don't have enough visas for the people we need. That's a pretty simple one. So he was doing that, but he was deported three times. When he was 20, he became a Christian. He accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. Um, he married his sweetie, Vicky, who's a, a U.S. citizen. They had a couple of children together. Um, and he became a pastor in the Assemblies of God and church planted this vital, growing little church. So he actually has the three cases that are, that are standard cases in our immigration system, which is a blood case. We call them blood, sweat, and tears. Blood is, you know family relationship, married to a citizen. He has a tears case. He ran from Guatemala and he has a sweat case. He's approved by the Assemblies of God and trained and equipped and sent to church plant. So he's got three cases, right? So he said to Vicky, please petition for me. I'm sick and tired of being illegal. So Vicky petitions for him. This is under the last administration. And um, they find out that none of his qualifying cases can be considered under our broken system unless the de deportation orders are legally removed by a judge. So an immigration judge once told me that can take 20 years, it can cost a million dollars. So people have to hide the case, right? So, but under, before this administration, we had something called deferred action stay of removal, prosecutorial discretion. Those are all terms that were used to describe this. That basically say that a person in a situation like the Curias family could defer his deportation. He would be considered a low priority, not a public threat, a low priority for detention and deportation while he fought his case. As long as he didn't commit a crime, as long as he supported his family, he would be fine. So under the last administration, he went in twice, two years apart, still fighting the case. Under this administration, he was detained and scheduled to be deported because this administration says that they're going after criminals, but they consider Noe Carias a criminal because of his deportation orders. So that just gives people a, a very clear picture of, you know, what we're newly facing under this administration that's different and also of the complexity of what is illegal, what is not under an, a broken system. So you're not a lawyer, right? And you're not a, just a community, or, not just, I didn't mean that, but you're not a community organizer, um, 
alone. You are a pastor. Yeah, and I'm a professor. That's where the doctrine comes in. I now teach for Fuller Theological Seminary. And well, so you so you teach Christians. You know, I, so I guess my point is, um, you come at this work with that unique perspective. Yeah. You have a, a faith-rooted sense of how to do justice in the world, which means that that you are a person who believes in the good news, even in the midst of what just three stories you told me, and I know you know a hundred more, of very, very bad news. I, I wonder if you can help me um, and, and those who are listening who, who also believe uh, that we are people of this good news and who need to, to see and, and believe that that is alive today. How do you see hope, um, even as we are in the midst of this very difficult moment? So one of the things I want to do, Kate, is I really want to put that in the context of the call of the church throughout the ages. I think that the prosperity of the North American church has caused us to confuse optimism and hope. That when in, on a human level, you can pretty much make happen what you want, right? Then you confuse that with God's favor right? But the, the reality is that the church was made for adversity, that around the world and throughout the ages, there's, there hasn't been a lot you can hope for in the way of concrete, visible prosperity and safety on this earth, right? That we live, as Luther said, on this side of the cross with foretastes of the feast to come. Now, those foretastes of the feast to come come in all different forms, Sometimes they come in concrete victories. You know, we got, Noe Carias was in detention for four months. We got him freed to fight his case. He's not out of the woods, but he was freed from detention to be with his family and fight his case. Well, that's a foretaste of the feast to come, right? That's just plain and simple joyful. Um, you know, so what we, sometimes we can achieve on an individual basis those kinds of results, and it's worth trying. Any kind of result that brings a smile to a child's face instead of tears and terror. You know, there are things you can do like that. And, and, but then the way that you do them makes a difference. You know, people's, for example, um, we create support circles that are immigrant and non-immigrant churches working together with the, with the help of Fuentes, who are bilingual bicultural millennials. We do that in Southern California through an, an evangelical network called Matthew 25 or Mateo 25. But then we have a larger um, ecumenical collaboration for asylum seekers that involves Lutherans and Italians and Methodists and Presbyterians. But we all work together in these support circles around Southern California. Being in the support circles, experiencing the body of Christ across all the lines is joyful. It's joyful. People's courage and faith and fortitude is joyful. The faith and fortitude and courage of the guests, right? That the, that the support circles, when you have immigrants and non-immigrants working together, then the guests are not recipients. The guests are just part of the circle, right? They're getting help in the moment, but later they're going to be helpers, right? We don't have those. Um, we make covenants with the guests. We don't rescue them, right? It's a very different orientation. And, and, and that orientation is very much a, a scripture way of being, the body of Christ. And there's joy in it. There's joy in being the body of Christ, Right? And joy always gives you, when you know that that joy is is a foretaste of the feast to come, it gives you hope. You know, Desmond Tutu always says we're resurrection people. That we know how to live in the this side of the cross with this 
this taste of the resurrection that gives us strength, right? So, you know, you, you do try to win in a very concrete, practical way wherever you can, um, but you do understand that you're building towards a future you can't see. Oscar Romero talked about that, that you're building towards a future you can't see. Um, and people around the world and throughout the ages haven't expected to be able to see that. They walked by faith and not by sight. And of course, that's what Hebrews 11 is about, all these people whose courage was so beautiful and inspiring, whose faith was so beautiful and inspiring, they walked by faith and not by sight, right? That they got sustenance on the journey from, from who walks with us, that the one who walks with us is the one who died and resurrected. So, you know, we walk, as we walk with him through our pain and he is our great healer. He's our great sustainer. And that is what the church was made for, was that journey, not so much a journey from prosperity to prosperity, right? Um, so, so I think we have to, to rediscover the hope of the church. Well, I learned so much from you. And every time I talk to you, I, I do walk away feeling, um, well, what it's like for me is that it helps me to remember uh, why I believe in this big, beautiful story. Um, and so thank you for that. You've ministered to me today and um, your work so deeply inspires me. So thank you. I appreciate it. And I hope that the people who are able to listen to this also feel that sort of glimpse of hope and that reminder of the big picture of what we're doing together as the church and as the body of Christ. Thank you. Amen. 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 Thank you. The Do Justice Podcast is produced and edited by Eric Nykamp for the Christian Reformed Church of North America. Our opening theme was written by Quetzal Kantla, transitions provided by Valentin Sosnitsky. Until next time, remember that the Lord is righteous, He loves justice, and the upright will see His face.